Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Avram Weiss, who is a psychotherapist, author, and teacher. Dr. Weiss's decade-long work on understanding the internal lives of men culminated with his recently published fourth book, the bestseller, Hidden in Plain Sight, How Men's Fears of Women Shaped Their Intimate Relationships. Dr. Weiss is a regular contributor to the Psychology Today website and gives workshops nationally, teaching men and women how to better understand each other. He lives on an island off the coast of Maine with his wife and dog. Avram, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So first off, I'd like to congratulate you on your book, Hidden in Plain Sight, How Men's Fears of Women Shape Their Intimate Relationships. Uh, It was a really, I thought, a very thought-provoking and provocative book and very important subject matter. And I understand recently it's reached uh, bestseller status on some of the sales platforms. So congratulations on all of that. Thank you. Thank you. It's exciting. So first off, I'd like to have you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your professional career, and how you came to write this book before we start diving into the meat of it. Could we start with that? Sure, absolutely. I'm a psychologist. Uh, I live on an island off the coast of Maine, and uh, I have always been interested in, even from graduate school, I've always been interested in what seemed to me like the big questions that people just skipped over and didn't talk about. And so my previous book was a book about the process of change, which you think would be sort of a staple of graduate education in psychology, but is actually hardly mentioned. Mm. So I got very involved and it usually takes me about eight to 10 years to work on a book. And mostly I work on things that I'm interested in learning about. And so I went through some changes in my life and started seeing a lot more men in my practice, which is unusual for most therapists. Um, Men are usually underrepresented in psychotherapy. And as I sat listening to men, I kept hearing the same story again and again. And basically men would come into my office and give me their laundry list of all the things they were unhappy about in their relationships. And I naturally asked them, well, have you talked with your girlfriend or wife or partner about any of these? And almost universally, they looked at me like that was, why didn't I understand what a stupid question that was? Mm -hmm. And that basically, if they could have talked to them about it, they wouldn't be there talking to me about it. And it gradually occurred to me that they were afraid to talk to their partners. And so I started checking it out with them. I would say sort of hesitantly, it sounds like you're afraid to talk to her and got a very affirming response pretty much universally. It wasn't in an idea that had occurred to the men themselves, but within a minute or so, they really took to the idea. And as we started exploring it, we just learned together more and more about all the ways in which that's true in so many men's lives. Yeah. So you have an experience, I think, that a lot of therapists have about finding the hesitancy often of men coming to therapy and wanting to talk about emotional content, 
but Absolutely. pretty quickly being able to break through that as you yeah. start. And Avram, I wanted to mention one other thing that you and I actually have something in common that we both live on islands. So I just wanted That's to right. mention that. Yours is a little bigger than mine. Probably a little bit bigger. Um, so, you know, your the title of your book is so provocative because it uses that word fear and men right. in the same sentence. And I think when we think about men and we think about the concept of fear, that's a very, very uncomfortable type of connection there. And then I think as we start digging into it a little bit deeper, you start explaining, well, that fear isn't necessarily the fear of being attacked by saber-toothed tigers or dinosaurs and having to stand up to them. It's a little bit more on a deeper emotional level than that. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I I had several people, well-meaning, well-intentioned people suggest to me, often men, that um, they probably could get with what I was talking about more easily if I didn't use the words scared and fear. And actually I use those words intentionally because it is in my experience with men that when you sort of name it that directly is when they best connect with the feeling itself. And if you say, are you nervous about or are you worried about, they can sort of keep that at arm's length. But if you say scared, it's almost like Um, it's almost like a Zen koan, you know, like what is the sound of one? It just sort of startles them and they connect with it pretty quickly. But yeah, people do object to the term. Well, I think it's a very provocative title for sure. And I think, you know, oftentimes the most provocative things are what gets people to think and listen and really respond to material. It could have been a lot more provocative. If I had my way, I want to name the book Pussy Whipped. <laughs> that would be pretty provocative for sure. Yeah, I don't but, know how that would go on the, on the bookshelves with kids walking by. True, and I don't know how the publishers would have responded to that. But um, good for you for just being out there with these concepts and uh, presenting them to the public. Yeah. So, you know, in the beginning part of your book, you actually address, I believe it's seven or so specific fears that you talk about that are relevant to this subject. And I'd like to just sort of go through them and talk a little bit about what you mean by them. The first one being you you talk about the idea of the fear of being controlled and dominated. Uh, What does this look like for men? And why do men fear that? Well, I think the, the way it looks like or what it looks like, um, I'll go back to what I wanted to uh, originally call the book, which is the sort of intriguing question of why is it that the worst thing one man can say to another man is that he's pussy whipped, that he's, you know, and note what's interesting is all the pejorative terms we use about men suggesting that they're controlled by women are feminizing terms. Mm. We say he's been emasculated. We say he's been pussy mipped. We say his partner is a ball buster. And so in there, you hear the underlying threat, which is that to be controlled by a woman is to be less than a man. Mm-hmm. And so the reason men are afraid of it is that it impugns their masculinity, that to in front of other men, to look as if you are not the, you know, the classic head of the house um, suggests that you are less than a man. I got a a, a robo fundraising call uh, yesterday from somebody, it's spam, uh, somebody pretending to raise money for some police organization. And he kept kept asking me if I was the head of the house. Finally, I said, you know, it's 2022. We don't really talk like that anymore. But 
you know, that stuff is pretty deep seated in men. And the idea of not being head of the house, of not being in charge is pretty threatening. Right. So in other words, the fear of being controlled or dominated is kind of like this idea that if the man isn't in charge, then he's less than a man. He has more feminine traits and that somehow is emasculating and bad for him, wrong for him. Yeah, yeah. And it's confusing for guys because most people grew up in families in which the woman deferred to the man, at least on one level, but on many subtler levels, the woman ran the household. And so there's this verbal message about head of the household. And then there's observing your parents' marriage and seeing that's probably not how it worked. Mm -hmm. What about this concept of fear of being entrapped? I use the word entrapped because I think that men, as opposed to trapped, because I think men attribute a conscious intent to women. They then think that women are trying to consciously entrap them. And what's interesting is the sort of premise underlying that is that somehow it's better for women to be in a committed relationship with a man than it is for men. That men lose something when they marry or are in a committed relationship and women gain something. It's an interesting idea only because it's completely 180 degrees not true. Mm -hmm. All of the research substantiates that married men are healthier, happier, and wealthier, by the way, than unmarried men, whereas single women are healthier, wealthier, and happier than married women. So it's pretty clear that in almost any significant measure, marriage actually serves men better than women, which is why men remarry so much faster than women after a divorce. So again, it's an odd idea we have. It's really, really odd. Um, and I know that those statistics you're talking about, those are sort of well known in the research community. So those are well established. Do you have any yeah. idea why? Like, what is it in the psychodynamics of uh, gender and male upbringing that would cause them to feel like women are trying to entrap them and they somehow, I guess, are losing by becoming entrapped? Well, I think it's denial. I mean, it's a great question, but I, I think it's denial. I think men in general are disown our dependency. And so we present pictures of ourselves to ourselves and other people as independent, self-reliant, don't need anybody for anything, and certainly don't need a woman. And so then we imagine that women need us and we don't need them, and that therefore women are trying to trap us, but um, it's because men are pretty out of touch with their needs for connection, intimacy, and their dependency. Uh, one of the things, you know, it's always interesting to work with guys who get divorced, because one of the things you hear almost all the time is they look around and say, where, where did all my friends go? Mm. And they realize that they actually didn't have any friends, that they had men who were married to their wives' friends, who they saw as a couple with their wives, but had never seen just the two of them alone. And that when they weren't a part of a couple anymore, they don't have, they realize that they really haven't had friends. Right. That's such a common thing to see that the right. woman usually has most of the friends and the man mostly just it, has the woman. But it always surprises <laughs> the guys, which is interesting. Like you really, you didn't figure that out, huh? Like it, you didn't notice that you didn't, you know, have anybody to do anything with or anybody to call or, and of course that puts an enormous amount of pressure on the marriage. Absolutely. And so I think the key thing that you mentioned there was that idea of dependency. 
that maybe for the man feeling like if I'm dependent on this woman here, that means I'm not a man. I can't take care yes. of myself. I'm not strong. But the woman is trying to entrap me in this because she's yes. a dependent one and trying to pull me into this thing that maybe I shouldn't right. need to be in. You talk a bit about this idea that a fear that men cannot provide and protect women. How does that come up in the dynamics? Well, it's interesting. It sort of stems from a pretty core belief in our culture, which is that as a man, your value is how well, not so much based on yourself as a person, but more based on how you function, that your value is what you do, not who you are. And for men, the job that they see their dad doing and they see other men doing and they're taught to do is to protect and provide for their families. The reason that's so insidious is that this has a lot to do with why conflict is so volatile in heterosexual relationships. That if it's my job to protect and provide you and you're upset about something, even if it's not upset with me, that means I'm failing in my job. And if my definition, if my self-identity as a man is to do that job, then anytime you're upset or unhappy, I'm failing as a man. And so women frequently don't understand why men are so reactive and defensive because they're saying, you know, I asked you a month ago to paint the guest room and you haven't done it yet, which to them seems like, who cares? It's not a big deal. But to the man, feels like you've just said, I'm not a man. You've just said, I'm a failure. And so you get this big reaction and the woman is going, what, what's going on? Why are you so reactive to that? So there's a lot of pressure for men to live up to Absolutely. this expectation of a role to take care of a woman's emotional experience. Yes. That's a lot of pressure. I think men feel that pressure. I think that has a lot to do with why men have such higher rates of stress-induced illnesses like cardiovascular disease is exactly that kind of pressure that men feel. And on the other side of the coin, you said something interesting that the women who are experiencing these emotions, they have thoughts and feelings about something and express it to their male partners, aren't necessarily looking for the men to be responsible for their feelings. They're kind of baffled by it. The word I hear men use most often in response to their partners is criticize. And oftentimes in a couple's therapy session, a man will say, see, right then she was just being critical of me. And mm -hmm. I can kind of hear it if I squint and, you know, I can sort of hear a small, but it really wasn't. If anything, it was just a little bit critical. But if your self-worth and well-being hinge on your partner being happy, then any dissatisfaction in her is magnified for you. I see. So it goes something like this. The woman says something like, you know, I really wanted the room painted and you haven't painted it yet. And I'd really like to get this painted. And the man's hearing you're really, really upset and I failed you and you think I failed as a partner. And that's really uncomfortable one of the most extreme cases I've seen of a man who absolutely believed that he could tell if his wife was upset with him when he opened the front door of the house before even seeing her, that he was so hypervigilant and so focused and so preoccupied on whether or not he was okay with her, that he could feel it in the air before even seeing her. 
you know, there's so many instances where the partner is saying, no, I, I'm, I'm upset about something that has nothing to do with you. You and I are fine. And that is not soothing in a lot of cases. It's just not okay to have your partner not okay with you. This gets into another subject. You talk about the fear of being inadequate. I think it's probably connected, but maybe you could say a few words about that. It follows exactly from that. If it's my job to protect and provide you, then what's underneath that? If, if I'm not doing my job on the surface, then you will discover my secret fear, which is that I'm simply not up to snuff as a human being, that I cover for that by being a good provider. But if it really came down to just me for who I am, that it's, it's kind of like the imposter syndrome, that you would discover that I'm not a person worthy of being loved. And that is one of the most fundamental fears for men. And it's mostly unconscious, but it's a terrible burden to carry around thinking if I don't keep pedaling as fast as I am and I don't keep being a good guy and reliable and loyal and a good provider that um, essentially you'll leave me. And how does that play out in sexual dynamics? Sexual relationships work best when each person is aware of and interested in, in their own pleasure as well as their partner's pleasure. They don't work so well if either person is only interested in their partner's pleasure, and they don't work so well if either person is only interested in their own pleasure. The first one is not so obvious to people, but I think if you think about your own experience, you realize it's not really enjoyable to be intimate with somebody who is not interested in their own pleasure. For many men, sex is so much a test of their adequacy and their capacity to please their partner that they are largely divorced from their own sense of pleasure. Esther Perel, the sex therapist, talks about this. She says that women often say that sex with their partner feels more like a boy asking for permission than it does a man expressing desire. This is why men are so preoccupied with whether or not their partner had an orgasm, because really what they're asking is to be graded. That's really fascinating, Avram, because you know, when I think of the stereotype of the criticisms of men and sex, it's, it's usually around like, oh, men just sort of want to get off and they're, you know, they use women and they're not interested yeah. in their women's pleasure. But you're actually saying kind of the opposite, that actually the man is more focused on being an adequate lover than he is really on his own pleasure. In fact, surveys of men when asked about what was most important to them about their sex relationship said pleasing their partner. It's complete opposite of what the stereotype is. No, that's really fascinating. So if yeah. you are the therapist to this guy who has that issue, what do you try to teach him or show him about this dynamic? Well, hopefully I would have his partner in the room at the same moment. Yeah. And what I would say to her is, do you have any idea of how unbelievably important it is to him to please you? Do you have any idea that when you say to him, could you um, go a little slower, that he is undone by that? Yeah. And how yeah. careful you need to be in talking with him in any way that suggests that you're not pleased. Yeah, this whole concept of inad inadequacy, I think, is so important. I think that's a core piece of what you're talking yeah. about, that for the male psychodynamics, just this concern of like, am I an adequate man? Am I an adequate yeah. lover? Am I an adequate partner? Why, why do women fake orgasms and men don't? 
because men are not worried that women are going to fall apart if they don't have, if they, the man don't have an orgasm. Yeah. I've read stuff written by many women who talk about feeling sort of hounded by men about whether they had an orgasm. It's not generosity on the part of the man, it's anxiety. How about fear of abandonment? I know that connects to what we've been talking about as well, but say a few words about that. Well, I think it's sort of the bottom level, the underlying fear is that if I am only a value for what I do, then you know the longer we're together and the better you get to know me and then really find out who I am, that that won't be love, that that's not lovable. That stripped of, you know, if, I, for example, as I age and I'm, you know, I'm less capable of bringing in the firewood or making sure you're safe or getting up in the middle of the night, that when it just comes down to me, the person, that you won't value me and you'll leave. Mm-hmm. So I'm inadequate. If I'm inadequate, you'll abandon me. If you abandon yeah, me, I'll be. Saying. Yeah. And you'll abandon me. And on some level, I know I really can't take care of myself. I really don't know how to be alone. So why do men fear abandonment? Does this stem from early relationships with their mothers, their, their childhood attachment and development? Where does it come from? I think it happens a little later in life. <laughs> Although as therapists, you know, we always like to go to the early childhood stuff. Yeah. So, uh, Carol Gilligan wrote really beautifully about what happens to boys and girls in school. And, you know, boys and girls start out playing together in mixed groups. At some point, the girls start playing with the girls and the boys start playing with the boys. And the girls, what they're playing is they're practicing relationships. They're playing school, they're playing house, they're playing doctor all of which they are practicing relationships and they get very good at it. They also probably remain closer to their mother. So they continue to learn about intimacy and closeness from their mother. Boys get presented with an interesting dilemma. Dads become more involved, more active in a boy's life and basically say, I got a deal for you. It's a bit of a Dorian Gray deal. I will give you access to the world of power and privilege of manhood, but The cost is you have to forego any aspect of yourself that might be construed as feminine. So the men go off, the boys go off by then their groups and they practice competition and aggression. Then puberty happens. Boys are interested in girls again. The girls who've had cooties (laughs) and we wouldn't touch one. Now all of a sudden we're interested, but the problem is they've got 10 years of practice in relationships and we have not. Mm -hmm. And so on some level, men understand heterosexual relationships go well at that point when men are smart enough to understand, you know what, I'm out of my element here, but she knows a lot more about this. I'm gonna let her teach me about how to be close to someone else. Mm -hmm. They don't go well when the man gets in the same position and says, well, I'm not gonna let her be the boss of me I'm not going to let her tell me how to dress or how to talk. It's that, it's that crossroads that really largely determines how well the relationship It's really, you know, can you be humble and learn something? In which case, there's a lot of good stuff for you. That was a really fascinating part of your book, actually. I really enjoyed that concept of boys needing to earn their manhood in the company of other men where girls just can be girls and they interact 
they're socially interpersonally connected with each other and they get to practice that. And so again, that seems like a lot of pressure to be stereotypically male because you're, you're basically competing to be a male. That's what you're learning. And I think it's why we die. What is it? Eight years younger. It's a lot. It's a big number. I got a call from a reporter from the Washington post who I'm talking with this afternoon who wants to talk about men and suicide because 80% of successful suicides are done by men. Mm. Again, that's a pretty significant number. And we're not as a culture, very interested in that. Yeah, that's, that is really tragic for sure. You talk a bit about conflict avoidance in relationships, in relationship to fear of abandonment. What does conflict avoidance look like for men? What it looks like is men try to take the conflict. They try to get the home court advantage. So home court for a man is I want an argument that is rational and linear and not emotional because that's where they feel more comfortable. The argument gets emotional, then men start saying things like, just be rational, just be clear. You're being hysterical, stop exaggerating. And what they're really saying is being in an argument with you that's more emotional is making me feel things that I've worked my whole life to not feel. Right. And so it's tremendously dysregulating. So here are men who navigate the world and live successfully with these defenses intact except in their intimate relationships where they feel sort of stripped of the defenses they rely on. And so conflict in an intimate relationship, they'll get into conflict at work on the basketball court anywhere and feel good about that. But when the conflict involves vulnerability, then they really are struggle. And it sounds like when the conflict involves emotions that's what is vulnerable that's very uncomfortable for men yeah exactly and also i you know they have skin in the game whereas at work okay so you don't like me you fire me i'll get another job but at home you don't like me i'm abandoned you talked a bit about the femophobia the fear of being feminine as that a driving force that boys learn as they grow up and you make another interesting theme in your book about the idea that relationships with women can be threatening to men because if they connect with women, then they're reconnecting with these stereotypical feminine traits, which I guess we would call vulnerable emotions. What, what can you say about that? I want to add to what you just said, because the piece that's missing there is what a tremendous loss it is to detach from the parts of yourself. So the sad part for young men is that they don't lose their desire for closeness. It's just that they learn to hide it to be accepted as a man in the world. So they live with, it's not like they're so armored, they don't care. They still care, they're still human beings and still have the same needs for intimacy and closeness. I imagine that it's a lot like what gay people have felt like for so long, hopefully less now, but living in the world knowing who you are and watching yourself every moment to make sure there's no gesture or no way you say anything that would betray to someone that you're not who you appear to be and that you're subject then to mocking and criticism kinds of things. Let's talk a little bit about this concept of gender role conflict. Now, I get the sense that that is something that's very important that affects men and they struggle with in 
navigating various areas of their life as adults. Yeah, sometimes called gender role strain, gender role conflict. The, the guy who wrote the, Jim O'Neill wrote the foreword for my book and O'Neill um, has done or generated over 200 studies about gender role conflict. And gender role conflict is the gap between what men believe they are supposed to be and who they believe they really are. And the larger the gap, the more unhappiness in life and not just unhappiness, but things like anxiety and depression and all kinds of physiological illnesses are very correlated with gender role strength. So really what we're saying is that the gender role stereotypes that men feel compelled to meet are harming them, in some cases killing them. And there are just volumes of data supporting that. So you actually see in the research that the bigger that gap is, the more men suffer from mental health and also physical health related problems. Absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons for that is that one of the stereotype gender expectations is that men don't get help. Mm -hmm. And so they don't go to the doctor. Yeah. So, you know, they, they have a little pain in their chest and they're like, ah, you know, I'll go, I'll go work out. Right. Well, how many of your male patients come to you because they were sent by their wives or their partners? Or their physician. Or their physician, right. Yeah. Because they, you know, they end up in their doctor's office and the doctor says, if you don't do something about the stress in your life, you're not going to live 10 years. How does restrictive emotionality affect men? It affects them exactly in the way we're talking about because they, men don't lose their desire to be full human beings, to have a full range of feelings and to be close with other people. And so if you have to act as if that's not important to you, but it really, really is, it creates a lot of internal distress. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, women by and large think that men are not interested in closeness. You know, men do such a good job at hiding it that by and large women are really surprised to find out that their partner is as interested in intimacy as they are, because it often doesn't look that way. I imagine that in scenarios that go well, women and men work on their relationships and men start to get this to some degree, start reconnecting and, and become more intimate with their female partners. And maybe they're the safest person that they have in their life to try to reconnect with. But what about relationships with other males, uh, friendships, adult male friendships? You know, I think this is really the big untapped area. I started running men's groups about 10 years ago. And I remember distinctly the night before the first group. And I thought this was really the worst idea I've ever had as a professional. This is going <laughs> to be agony and torture. They're going to, because in mixed groups, men really lag behind. Women take the lead in terms of opening up and then men follow behind. But what, to my surprise, what I found is that men in a group by themselves without women watching are almost desperately eager to connect with each other. That's really wonderful. It's a wonderful thing to learn. And so part of what we have to figure out as a culture is how do, how do we create spaces for men where they feel comfortable and private enough to connect. And one of the contributions I tried to make in the book 
is there's a chapter with sort of step-by-step -step guidelines for men um, who might want to get together as a group and read the book and then have an ongoing kind of support group with each other where they can just connect and hang out and build relationships. I think that's a great idea. And I honestly, I think your book would be fantastic for that. So you're, you. you're almost talking about sort of like a, a book club focused on this and maybe yeah. other men's books too, where men yeah. can, yeah. they have a little bit of a, a prompt from where to start yeah. and then, and to get them going with that. Exactly. And, and the other unintended consequence um, has been, I would say at least half a dozen couples have told me that they read the book together in bed at night, mm. which I think is just delightful. So they, they each read a chapter and then they talk about the chapter and then they read another chapter and it's been tremendously helpful for them. And I love the idea. I think that uh, that makes perfect sense. And I really think that women could benefit from the book too, because obviously trying to understand your partner better there. You know, when I work with couples, I always tell the couples like nothing that's going on here is either one of your fault in your relationship because relationships exist in a dynamic, right? You know, yeah. the way one person, what they bring to the table creates a dynamic with the other person. And obviously some are probably gender related expectations and gender related upbringing. And to the extent that both men and women can understand these better about each other is just going to deepen their relationship and make things go better. I think that's beautifully said, and particularly in this case, because what I find is that women misinterpret what they see from men all the time. They think that men are being withholding and engaging in a power struggle. And when women understand how scared men are that they're going to stop loving them, then it opens, the, it sort of softens all the anger and the resentment that's built up and really opens the door for empathy and compassion. Right, for sure. Because ultimately, what women want from their partners is what the men want as well, but just don't know how Absolutely. to do it right. Yeah. So what I've been doing in workshops is having a group of volunteers, men come up in front of the room and talk with each other about their fears. And then the men sit down and the women come up and talk about what they just learned from listening to the men. And then the men come back and the men and women talk to each other. And the dialogue that happens between the men and women at that point, after having, the key is they, they listen to each other without having to see each other or engage. They can just listen without worrying about all that stuff. And then when they come back and talk with each other, it's incredible how much that opens up. Very, very powerful. So workshops, book groups and discussion. Can you mention any other ways that you think would be helpful for men to be able to understand and confront and deal with these fears differently and better for them? Sure. In the book, I suggest there's a progression of three things for men to do. The first is to do their own work. The second is to do work with other men. And the third is to do work with their partner. And I think it, obviously it starts with you in terms of whoever you're talking with, whether that be a therapist or a friend or whoever you're talking with in your life, exploring the ways in which these fears are running your life. And then the step that might not occur to people is to talk with other men about it. Because people might think, oh, well, the next step is to talk with your partner. But I think if you skip the middle step, it's gonna be a lot harder to talk to a woman. It's easier for men to talk to other men. And that's why I recommend that they find some kind of setting where they can talk with other men and before tackling talking with their partner. 
Avram, how do you do this therapeutically with your men? So I'm imagining they're coming to therapy. Their defenses and guards are probably up because, well, they're men and they don't want to be weak. They don't want to be feminine. They're, right. yeah, and you had mentioned that they sort of, in the group therapies, they sort of open up pretty quickly. But how, how, how is that process of getting them to examine and get past those defenses of dealing with the fears? I think what helps a lot, I, I laugh a lot. I laugh a lot in this interview. I laugh a lot in therapy. But I think people hear it and understand it for what it is, which is not a mocking laugh, mm-hmm. but a laugh where I'm going, oh, do I recognize that one? Because <laughs> everything you and I have talked about, I know about from my own experience, not just from listening to other men. And so I, I feel a compassion and an empathy for men around these fears um, because I understand them so well. And so I think men feel not only heard, but, but sort of normalized. And I say to them, you know, you're the seventh person I've talked to today that's, you know, it's, it's, I hear this all day, every day, and they don't know that. Yeah. So this might be a tough question to answer. I'm just sort of thinking about what you're talking about, that the value there is for men to work with male therapists or other men who can kind of relate and identify it. We know that actually out there in the world, there's far more female therapists than there are male therapists. And I have tons of female colleague therapists and and they're absolutely awesome. But on this issue of, of fear and masculinity, is there any value for men seeing male therapists for that? Or can, can they get those kinds of needs met working with a female therapist? Yes, they can. And I'll make an analogy. When I was early in my career, I did a lot of work with Vietnam combat veterans. And that is a group of people who are notorious for absolutely not saying a word to anybody who didn't serve in Vietnam, at least the military, but preferably Vietnam. And I did that work for 15 years and I maybe had one or two times where people objected to, and I'm not a veteran. Um, Worse than that, I was a conscience objector. Mm And um, I think the reason that I didn't get that kind of resistance is that I didn't pretend to know something I didn't know. I was interested in knowing from them and I was humble and respectful of their experience. So I don't think being a man necessarily qualifies you to work with men. I think being a man who's done his own work and who understands these issues, which a woman could do as well. So any woman who's interested in understanding these issues is more qualified to work with men than a man who hasn't done any of that work. So Avram, uh, this has been super interesting reviewing your thoughts and the work that you put into this amazing book. I wanted to ask if you have any final thoughts on the topics of men's fear of women and what we've discussed today that you'd like to leave us with. Thank you. I've enjoyed talking with you very much. Um, and I appreciate your preparation and your excitement um, and yeah. your support for these ideas. I, I, I'll end just because of what's happening in the world today by going out in a limb a bit and making uh, a bit of a polemic. You know, I heard an epidemiologist say once the question was asked him, what's the most dangerous thing in the world? Is it Ebola? Is it COVID? This is before COVID, but is it infectious disease? Is it global warming? They said, oh, no. The data is very clear. The most dangerous thing in the world are males between the age of 19 and 24. Oh, gosh. Cause more death, more destruction, more harm than anything else in the world. 
And I say that because we're all sitting and watching the invasion of Ukraine, whatever your politics are, people are horrified by what's happening. And, and that has a lot to do with what we're talking about because those are so stereotypically masculine solutions to problems. And do you look around and you see all the people who are running this disaster and you don't see any women. And you look at the data about what happens in organizations where the leadership is more diversified and you don't get the same kind of posturing, ultimatum setting. It's critically important. Yeah, you hear people say that all the time that the world would be a much better place if we had more females in these kinds of positions. And I don't necessarily think it has to be females, but it could be males that are more in touch with these other areas of their internal experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that women are better than men. If the world were run by women, I'd be saying the same thing about including men's voices. It's not that women, a woman's voice is more valuable than a man's. It's that a broader spectrum of voices is better than such a narrow, rigid stereotype. Yes. Well, thank you, Avran. Again, Hidden in Plain Sight, How Men's Fear of Women Shape Their Intimate Relationships. I know I'm going to be recommending this to some of my patients and their partners, and congratulations with that. And I hope to catch up with you again sometime soon. Sounds good. Take care. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.